It's been a week for looking at pictures of the bombings in Boston, of course, the aftermath, the FBI suspects, everything that's happened since. By Wednesday, a few people in our office were going onto Reddit, the online discussion board, to read the conversation where amateurs were scouring through those crowd photos of hundreds of faces searching for anybody who might be a bomber. Zach Barnett was one of those amateurs, and he was a skeptic. He started Tuesday morning. When posters started chattering about a guy in the crowd that they nicknamed Music Man, a guy who was wearing headphones, a black jacket with a huge black backpack. It was a huge backpack that made him suspicious. Zach was the person who alerted everyone. There was an image after the bombing had, had taken place with tons of ambulances on the scene, and there was what seemed to be Music Man with his backpack. And so this, this seemed to suggest that he was not responsible. Because if he has the backpack after the blast, obviously it's not his backpack that caused the blast. Right, right. After this display of level-headedness, Zach, who was a college student, was asked to be one of the moderators of the discussion on Reddit. There's been some criticism of Reddit for going through Boston marathon photos looking for suspects. The Atlantic called it vigilantism. It made it seem like these were crazed nerds on a delusional CSI witch hunt. And you definitely can find quotes that make it seem that way. But if you read the full discussions, you'll see how careful people are trying to be very aware of the dangers of accusing an innocent person of being a bomber. It's a big part of the discussion. When somebody posts the uh, Facebook page of one potential suspect, people declare, this has gone too far. The post is deleted. The poster is banned. And Zach was far from the only skeptic. Take, uh, for example, the discussion of a pair of guys they called the Backpack Brothers, because one of them had a big, heavy-looking black backpack. And he was wearing a white hat with some glasses on top of the hat. And then there was another man in a blue tracksuit and running shoes, which isn't exactly out, out of place at a marathon. And he has a duffel bag, right? Yeah, he had a duffel bag over his shoulder. There were a couple of things about the Backpack Brothers photos that made Zach feel like, of all the pictures, these had the greatest likelihood to be real suspects. Somebody uh, linked to this ingenious photo which superimposed the shot of the Backpack Brothers on the sidewalk before the explosion with a picture of the same stretch of sidewalk after the bombs went off, with a big red circle drawn at the spot where the bombs supposedly had blown up, and damned if it wasn't exactly next to where those two guys had been standing. And even more damning were other photos taken, still before the blast. Where one of them definitely didn't have his bag. The, the, the person with the white hat did not have his bag with him, and the other one, you couldn't really tell if he did or didn't. And so the speculation is they had bags before the blast, and then later... Still before the blast, they had left their bags somewhere. Exactly. And based on the time of when the images were taken, which you could see the marathon clock in the photo, uh, it did line up with uh, roughly when people thought that the bags had been dropped. And so this led people to really be suspicious of these two. But by Wednesday, people on Reddit were discussing the details that would make you less suspicious of these two. Like, for example, the duffel bag was blue. Authorities never mentioned a bomb in a blue bag. Or, most important, except for the white cap, these two guys did not match the description of the suspects that authorities started to circulate by Wednesday afternoon. So by the end of the day Wednesday, most posters on Reddit, including Zach, seemed to be moving away from the Backpack Brothers as possible bombers. Of course, this wasn't true everywhere. On Thursday morning, the New York Post blasted a photo of the Backpack Brothers across its front page. It's the entire front page with the screaming headline, Bagman, Feds seek these two pictured at Boston Marathon. 
Somehow the Post didn't notice that these two men do not match the description of the suspects that was circulating by then. By Thursday afternoon, authorities had publicly declared that these two men were not suspects. Photos of the real suspects were released. The Backpack Brothers turned out to be a high school sophomore who was very surprised at all this attention, and his friend. And on Thursday, when I talked to Zach about all the various photos, he was super careful not to jump to any conclusions, which, of course, is difficult. It just is so hard to look at these pictures without imposing a story on it. Yeah, exactly. You just, you can't help but read the photograph. Not just see see it for what it is, but to, to read a story onto it. Look, like here, here at our office this week, it was hard for all of us to not feel like, oh, look, look, it's him. It must be him. It must be, this must be the guy. And, and were you having feelings like that too? Oh, yeah. You can't, you can't help it. Um, when people are posting all these images and there's this person circled and there's an arrow drawn from this person to this person saying, oh, these two are working together. And um, the danger is not even just that people are going to speculate and jump to conclusions that are unwarranted, but really what's going to happen when you jump to unwarranted conclusions. Who's going to be affected? A picture is what you think it means. It is not self-evident. And today on our radio show, we have two stories where there are pictures, and in each of them, whether you think the pictures are worrisome and troubling depends on what you believe about the story of how they were made. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Two mysteries will unfold. Stay with us. Act one, photo op. It's no surprise that people disagree about how to interpret the photos and videos in this first story because the photos and videos were shot in a part of the world where people disagree about how to interpret so, so many things. Nancy Updike tells the story. I saw a video a while back that caught my attention. It's short, shaky, handheld video, and it shows an interaction between Israeli soldiers and a Palestinian family where there is no violence, no yelling, no confrontation. In the video, five Israeli soldiers show up at the house of a Palestinian family in a village named Nabi Saleh. It's around one in the morning. The father answers the door, and he starts to film what's happening, and the soldiers let him film. The soldier in charge asks the man in Hebrew if there are any children in the house, and how many. The man's got four children, three of whom are here at the house now, the little girls that are grandfathers. How many sons, the soldier asks. Three. The soldier asks to see the two oldest boys, 15 years old and almost 12 years old. The man says they're asleep, and the soldier asks him to wake them up, please. The man goes into the next room and calls his kids' names a couple of times. Again, it's around one in the morning. The kids lift up their heads, blink in the light, and slowly get out of bed. They stand next to each other in the doorway of their room, looking at the soldiers, who are in full gear. Helmets, guns. The younger boy has dark blonde hair, and his face is a little puffy with sleep. When the soldier in command says hello, he says his name, Muhammad. Shalom. The soldiers write down the boys' names and ID numbers. And then they take a photo of each kid. They've already taken a photo of the father. During the whole process, no one offers or asks for a warrant, a charge, an explanation. 
As the soldiers leave, the one in command glances at another door in the building and says, any more children? The father says, no. The only question the father asks is, can he go with the soldiers and keep filming while they go to the next house? They say no at first, and he says, why not? So they let him. I watched the unedited video he made that night, and I counted 12 more houses that the soldiers went to, waking up kids and photographing them. The undrama of this video is mesmerizing, the routineness, like watching a series of traffic stops. I've been coming to the West Bank reporting on and off for 15 years, and I've been here when the routine was suicide bombings in Israel, and in the West Bank, tanks and daily shootings. But it hasn't been like that for a long time, and the army taking photos of kids at night is something I'd never seen before. Watching the video, I felt like it was a window into this moment in the West Bank, this period of quasi-stability. Israel went into the West Bank 46 years ago. What does it take to control so many people so effectively for so long? And I know that lots of Americans feel like they have no right to ask questions about what Israel does because they're not there and they don't know what it's like to live with the dangers Israelis live with. But what Americans never seem to realize is how much Israelis ask questions, including about this video of soldiers photographing kids. The video aired on Israel's Channel 10 and also made the rounds on Israeli Twitter feeds and Facebook pages. And plenty of people who saw the video said, well, the army's got to do what the army's got to do. But others were disturbed. They had questions. And why shouldn't they? It's their sons and daughters who are in the West Bank or wherever else, right after high school, for years of mandatory military service. So I've got a question. What are these nighttime photos? Photos at night aren't new. It's a tactic that comes and goes, part of something the Israeli military calls mapping. This is mapping. In the middle of the night, the guy is in his pajamas. Yuda Shaul did his army service during the Second Intifada years ago, but he did a lot of mapping, and he's talked to a lot of other soldiers about it. He's showing me a snapshot taken by a soldier in 2008 in the West Bank city of Nablus, and the photo shows an older Palestinian man who seems to be in his pajamas sitting at a table in his house, across from an Israeli soldier who's writing something down on a piece of paper. Yeah, basically, you know, the ID numbers of the people who live, the names, drawing the, you know, who works where, cell phones, all the kind of stuff that you collect in mapping. Mapping is actually a general term that can mean a lot of different things. Photographs, diagrams of the layout of a house, where the windows and balconies are, what doors lead to which streets... Mapping's not violent, and months can go by without any mapping, so it's not something that usually makes the news. It's just one more part of the overall routine in the West Bank these days. The mapping and nighttime photos started in Nabisala, the village from the video you heard, a few months after the villagers began doing a weekly protest march, according to residents. These protests are also part of the routine in the West Bank. They happen every Friday. They happen in lots of villages. They've been happening in different villages for years. And there's practically a script... In Nabisala, the day I was there, there was a march, chanting, the villagers faced off against some soldiers, and after an hour or so of this, a lot of the adults left. But the bulk of what happens every Friday is what comes next, kids throwing stones. It goes on for hours. It's become the Friday afternoon activity for a lot of kids and teenagers in Nabisala. Teens sit with friends by the side of the road talking and roughhousing and then occasionally picking up a stone and throwing it or launching it with a slingshot. The soldiers on their side respond with tear gas, rubber-coated metal bullets, 
Two men have died from injuries they received at protests in Nabisala in the last year and a half. But today there's a lot of pretending to be fearless. One kid made a joke of acting like he'd been hit. At this point, throwing stones is one of the most common charges against Palestinian kids who are arrested in the West Bank. There are Palestinians throwing stones just about every day, not only at protests and not only at soldiers. A few weeks ago, a Palestinian was convicted of throwing stones that killed an Israeli father and his baby when they were driving in the West Bank. A stone hit the father in the head and he lost control of the car. The army takes stone throwing seriously, whether the stones are being thrown at armored jeeps or unarmed civilians. Soldiers videotape the weekly protests. And in Nabisala, the villagers told me the army does that so that it can take those images and compare them to the nighttime photos. That way, the army can arrest people who throw stones and go to demonstrations. It's safer and easier for the army to arrest people at night rather than at the demonstration itself. Though, arrests actually might not be the point of the nighttime photos. My officer tells me, um, he told me before we left, bring your camera. This is Nadav Beagleman. He was an Israeli soldier who took photos in mapping operations similar to the ones in Nabi Saleh. He's 24 years old and his army service ended in 2010, but his unit operated in villages that were also holding protests. Nadav said he'd just started his army service, and his commander told him to bring along his little Fujifilm camera one night to do some mapping. You know, it was like my first duty line after basic training and all that. Um, I, expe- I, I thought it have like the most important intelligence material. Yes, I thought someone would come and ask for these pictures. I didn't know how to... I think, in my in my mind, this is the most logical thing to do, that someone, uh, I don't know, intelligent, will ask for these pictures. But no one ever did ask for the pictures. Not only that, but Nadav says he later learned that all of the information they'd gathered, the ID numbers, the drawings of the layouts of the houses, all of it had gone in the trash. Nadav was a young soldier, 19 years old. He didn't question why. He just deleted the photos. Another soldier in Nadav's unit, Sagi Tal, confirmed that this happened. And Sagi said that over the course of his three-year army service, he saw the same thing happen again and again with mapping operations. You know, one of the ways I, I came to understand that this was just um, an exercise in futility was that, it, you know, every time a battalion, a new battalion would come in and be in charge of a certain area, they would order this mapping uh, procedure all over again. Um, and so it became clear to me that these photos weren't being used um, and, and didn't go into some kind of a database uh, the way uh, we were led to understand they would be. In my unit, we call that kind of operations uh, Condoleezza Rice operations. This is another soldier also named Nadav, Nadav Weiman. He was serving in 2008 when Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State. Because every time Condoleezza Rice came to Israel, we did that. You did a mapping operation. Yeah. I thought Nadav Weiman might have had a different experience with mapping than other soldiers because he was in a special forces unit and he was in charge of intelligence for his team, a sniper team. And he did have a different experience. The army sent him to a photo course and gave him a camera, a Nikon D200, with seven lenses. But when it came to mapping, it was the same with him as with other soldiers. He got back with all the photos and the information and the diagrams, went to his superior, 
And I said, okay, there's all the maps and the photos and everything. And he said, Nadav, erase the photos and just throw the papers to the trash can and don't ever come to me again with that, uh, with all the papers because you don't need to do that. Were you surprised? Yeah, I was very surprised. Because the first time we did it, we really, we did it really seriously. You know, we asked and we drew really, and, uh, really accurate and everything. And then we understood that it doesn't really matter. He says after the first time he did mapping, he just threw everything away automatically. I heard this and I didn't understand. Why get all that information and photos and then throw it away? And why keep doing that over and over? I went back to Yudha Shaul, the guy who first explained mapping to me and showed me the photo of the man in his pajamas. Again, Yudha did his army service years ago during the Second Intifada, but he's been in touch with hundreds of soldiers since then. Because after he finished his required army service, he and some others started an organization called Breaking the Silence that interviews Israeli soldiers about their experiences. Besides doing mapping himself, Yudha's heard mapping stories from dozens of IDF soldiers, Israel Defense Forces soldiers, including ones who are serving now. And he wasn't surprised by what Sagi and Nadav and the other Nadav told me. He said it was the same for his unit in Hebron. They mapped the old city of Hebron twice, then destroyed all the data on the orders of their commander without ever passing it on or doing anything with it. Look, very quick you understand that mapping is just another form of making your presence felt, right? Of Making your presence felt, that's, that's, a, that's a phrase. It's a, yeah. uh, demonstrating your presence. Yeah, the idea is very simple. Every Palestinian feels that the IDF is always right here. Yeah? You're pointing right to the back of your head, behind your left ear. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're breathing behind you. We're always there. We're always watching. We, you never know where we're going to be, when we're going to show up, how it's going to look like, what we're going to do, when it's going to start, when it's going to end, right? So what do you do to make them feel this way? You make your presence felt. But this is not a tactic. This is not a strategy that distinguishes between good guys and bad guys, right? Until the... I spent an afternoon talking to seven boys who were photographed in Nabi Saleh, the village where I saw the weekly protest. Most had been photographed more than once. Some had later been arrested, some hadn't. One of the kids I talked to was the younger boy from Bilal Tamimi's video, his son, Mohammed. Mohammed was almost 12 when the soldiers took his picture. He's just turned 14, but he seems young for his age. He didn't act tough or indifferent when I asked him about soldiers taking his picture. I was surprised that they were there. This is the first time that they enter our house. I had thought about it a lot before, but never expected it to happen. Muhammad's mother told me that he and his older brother worried in the weeks afterward that soldiers would come back. His older brother started sleeping in jeans and keeping his shoes next to the bed in case he was arrested in the middle of the night. Muhammad didn't like to sleep at all. I started staying up late, watching for the coming of the soldiers. His mother told me that for months she would wake up at 4 or 5 in the morning to the sound of the TV, and she would find Muhammad awake, half watching TV and half watching out the window to see if anyone was coming. Mohammed never was arrested, and neither was his older brother. But soldiers did come again to the house. Like before, it was around 1.30 in the morning. 
And just like before, his father, Bilal, videotaped it. Bilal's had video cameras since he was a teenager, but a few years ago he got a better one from an Israeli human rights organization called B'Tselem. Now he's got a video archive organized by date of the times the Israeli military has come into the village over the last couple of years. In this video, everyone has been woken up and is sitting in the kitchen, and one soldier is walking around with Bilal doing a search, asking him, in English this time, whether he has anything illegal or forbidden in the house. Do you have something who is unforbidden? Unforbidden like yes. what? Like uh, knives, like uh, I have a lot weapons. of knives. I have a lot of knives and the spools and the kitchen. In case you didn't hear it, Bilal is saying, I have a lot of knives and spoons in the kitchen. The soldier says, the kitchen is okay. I've got knives in my kitchen too. The soldier keeps walking around with Bilal, questioning him. Do you carry weapon? Weapon? For This is my weapon. Bilal points to his camera as he says this. Okay. It's a good weapon. Yes. Again, no one in the house is under arrest. The soldiers are just looking around, asking to see the older That's son's it. backpack, looking in cabinets and on shelves, asking more questions, and finally leaving. For sure, there are people in the West Bank who want to kill Israelis. Nadav Weiman, the special forces guy, showed me a photo he took after his team raided the house of a Palestinian man who had a workshop inside to build bombs. And we found a lot of uh, ammunition and things inside his house and bombs and everything. Nadav says the raid on that house was based on intelligence. And Israel has an incredible amount of information about who and what are in the West Bank. They've got cameras, informants, listening devices, drones, undercover units. And Nadav says that over the course of his three-year army service, the conclusion he came to, based on his own experiences and conversations with other soldiers, including his two older brothers, who were also special forces, was that some operations really were about gathering and using intel. He would go out and take reconnaissance photos, and they would be used. But he says those operations, even for his elite team, were the exception. He believes that a lot of what they did, including most mapping operations, fell into a different category, the demonstrating our presence category. And in that category was a whole range of things, from mapping to something else he says his team did, called mock arrests. Other soldiers also talked about this. And a mock arrest is exactly what it sounds like, arresting someone who's not really under arrest. Even more than that, Nadav said before his team went out to do a mock arrest, they would call the Shabak, Israel's internal intelligence agency. And we say to them, we want to go to do mock arrest in that house, in that uh, we give the number of the house, because, the, you know, there's maps, and all the houses are numbered, and they check and they have information about <laughs> all of the Palestinians in West Bank, and they give us the okay. Because if everybody in the house is innocent and not connected to terror, they say, okay, you can go. Let me underscore what he's saying here. He said his team could only do a mock arrest after Israel's intelligence service told them that no one in the house is suspected of wrongdoing. And we go in the middle of the night and we surround the house and we shout, uh, come out with your hands in the air, and we throw stun grenades or we fire uh, bullets at the, at the walls of the house or we throw smoke grenades. And then somebody comes out and he's afraid and, and he doesn't know what is happening. And we arrest him. And we shout a lot in Hebrew and Arabic. We arrest him, we put him inside the jeep. And then we do like 
two or three rounds. Uh, driving around the village. Driving around the village. And then after like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe the whole night, we put him back inside his house and drove away from there. And, and the goal in that operation, the goal is uh, creating the feeling of being chased in the Palestinian population. To create the feeling of being chased in the Palestinian population was an explicit goal that Nadav says he saw many times typed out in the PowerPoint presentation his team would be shown before a mission, right there along with all the other official information. Our team, our names, who is the officer, and what is the goal of the operation, and how we're going to do it, it's all written. And it's written to create the feeling of being chased in the Palestinian population, just like that. That's the mission that, that I was sent. And you see that a lot of things that you do in the, in, in, in the West Bank as a soldier, it's not, uh, I'm not here to protect Israel. I'm here to control Palestinians. I ran all this by Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, spokesman for the Israeli military, the Israel Defense Forces. I quoted to him the objective Nadav Weiman said he saw typed out before some missions. To create the feeling of being chased in the Palestinian population. I would not consider that a military objective uh, at all. And when we do carry out military operations, a specific target would be to arrest an individual, uh, to gather intelligence for a specific mission. It would not be just to intimidate anybody. I I would rule that off to begin with. Again, if there is a low-level commander making such a, a statement or even putting it in writing, it could be a mistake. I told Colonel Lerner about the mock arrests Nadav Weiman and other soldiers said they'd done. I asked him what's the purpose of a mock arrest. I can't even comprehend that type of term. When we carry out an arrest, we carry it out, we take the person, we take them to, for questioning. It could be a short questioning. You ask him a few questions, you see if there's any basis for further investigation, and, you could, and he could, could be released. It wouldn't be a mock. I would, not, I would, I would say that, that that would definitely not be how we operate. You've never, you've never heard that term? No, no. About mapping, he said. In the past, we did military operations to map out you know, populated areas to find out who's living where and who's doing what. Uh, I'm not aware of throwing data out or throwing intelligence out. I don't, never? I, you've never heard of that? No, I, I doubt that would be the situation. Uh, it would defeat the object. I mean, we don't just send troops out just to go out. We safeguard our own safety. We don't send people just and put them at risk, and, and, and we would look at the, every mission as a, on, in a professional manner. The years since the Second Intifada ended, around 2006, have been the quietest in a long time for Israelis, with some brutal exceptions. People don't worry about getting on buses the way they used to, or try to find tables in cafes far away from the door in case a suicide bomber gets in. So you could argue that creating the feeling of being chased in the Palestinian population has worked, that mapping is important to Israel's security, and it doesn't matter whether data is kept or not. But mapping and mock arrests are just a small part of things in the West Bank. For the last few years, there's been this intense cooperation between Palestinian Authority security forces and Israeli security forces. And Israel's built a barrier, a series of fences and walls in much of the West Bank. Those things probably have a lot more impact on Israelis' security than sporadic mapping operations. But then what's hard to calculate is the downside of mapping or mock arrests. 
What does it do when anyone, innocent or guilty, can be woken up by soldiers in the middle of the night, along with their kids? The soldiers who came to Bilal Tamimi's house and photographed his kids were notably polite. It's part of what makes the video compelling. The disconnect between how they're speaking and what they're doing. All of the soldiers I spoke with talked about feeling a version of that disconnect. And these are all people who entered the army wanting to protect their country. They joined combat units and did tough service. Nadav Vaiman, the special forces soldier, wanted to be on the front lines. He went into Lebanon. He was two days away from his reserve duty when we talked. And yet he and the others I talked to feel that a lot of what they've done in the army is deliberate intimidation of civilians. They don't believe it made Israel safer in the long run. And yeah, these are a select group. A lot of people, inside the army and out, don't see it this way. Nadav Beagleman, the guy who had mapping photos on his camera, told me about one night when his unit was given glow sticks, like kids buy at concerts, before they went out on their patrol. And their commander said to throw them into people's houses, just toss them through open windows or balconies. And you can say, okay, it's not violent, it didn't harm anyone. But the idea is, again, of course, just random houses, of course. The idea, again, is um, not the glow sticks, but what the glow sticks makes people think. I mean, just imagine, people wake up the next morning, um, prepare for school, to work, university, and they see a glow stick in the middle of their living room. And they understand the army was here. That's how 46 years go by. Sometimes with a heavy hand, sometimes with a light touch. Nancy Updike is one of the producers of our program. Kids drawing in ballpoint pen on printer paper. What could that possibly be worth? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, which is a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program we're calling Picture Show, about pictures and how the story that we tell ourselves about a picture totally determines what we see when we look at it. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program. Act 2, a picture is worth $1,000. Let's head now into the uh, world of buying and selling pictures, where every picture has a price. The price is very, very high. This is the fine art world with collectors and galleries and, of course, artists. Scott Pink Mountain has this story about whether it is possible to get away from all that once you are deep inside it. Chandra Singh is a painter, a good one. Straight out of an MFA program, she landed a gallery in New York. I was like minus $200 in my bank account. And I was driving to the city with some works on paper because my dealer was like, well, maybe because I make really big paintings. And he was like, maybe if you have something small, we can sell it. You know, like some, so mm-hmm. I'm driving there and uh, I get a phone call from him, from my dealer. And he goes, Chandra. And I said, yes. And he goes, Sachi just bought the Lazy River painting. And I just like dropped the phone and screamed. <laughs> Sachi would be Charles Sachi, 
co-founder of the international advertising firm Saatchi and Saatchi, and owner of the Saatchi Gallery in London. He's ranked among the wealthiest people in the UK and probably the most closely watched contemporary art collector on the planet. He ended up buying three more from the show. Oh, and then when he, when he buys it, what he does is that he automatically puts you on his website. Which is a big deal in itself because the Saatchi Gallery website is hugely popular among collectors. And then, uh, I don't know, all these collectors come and then I was offered a show right away with a, a really good gallery in Switzerland. Um, my gallery in New York, again, like automatically wanted to book my next show. You know, um, Saatchi said he wanted to see everything that came out of my studio. Soon, all the other paintings in her New York gallery show sold out. Then collectors bought every single piece in her studio, completely cleaned her out. This pace continued for five years. This is a whole side of the art world that most of us only have a vague awareness of, where collectors buy and sell art like it's wheat futures or pork bellies. And Chandra's work was part of that. Chandra's gallery sold a couple paintings to this one guy who turned around and immediately tried to resell them for a big profit. It felt weird. And that's what a lot of people do, particularly with Saatchi. Like, they, they buy what he buys. They don't even hang it in their apartment homes. You know, they put it in a warehouse, and they watch the value go up or down. It's like stocks, you know. Mm-hmm. And then if it goes up, you know, they hold on to it or they flip it. You know... It's amazing to to get all this success, but, like, painters really paint because there's sort of, like, this beautiful magic moment in it, you know? And after you're constantly making stuff all the time and people are buying stuff and then they're flipping paintings and it's all about money, it's like you you just crave for that that little magic moment again. Like, it becomes corrupted if you let it. So it was in the midst of all this when something happened to Chandra. As she tells it, she was laying in bed, struggling to get up and go to the studio to work on this big solo show. I look on my cell phone, and there's this email um, from this father in England. And he says that um, he's a really big fan of my work, and he has a 13-year-old autistic son um, who really loves my work, too. He's really, like, moved by my work. And that his son is an artist, and he's making work all the time. Um and that he's currently doing a series called Fire from the Eyes. And that uh, he wanted to know if he could buy Anthony, his son, um, one of my drawings or something for him because it would just make Anthony so happy. And then he said, you can reach us at our email. And then he gave me his address. And then he wrote, you know, best wishes, Anthony and Benjamin and Anthony. And when I got that, I was like, whoa, wow. You know, there's this like, there's this autistic boy in England who's moved by my work and, like, really loves my work to the point that his father had to email me and tell me. And I just, I don't know, it, 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 it just, like, lifted me up. And so I just thought it was amazing, and I told it, the story to a lot of people, um... And I ended up writing, writing back to him, and I just said, like, you know, I'm honored, uh, you know, that his son loves my work so much, and thank you so much for the email, and that I'd love to see Anthony's Fire from the Eye series. And the next day I get an email back from him saying, Anthony would love to send you some of his Fire from the Eye series. 
And I'm thinking about this whole thing, and I'm telling people this story about there's this autistic boy who's going to be sending me his drawings. And so I was like, why don't I just do a trade with him? You know, it's something like, it's just a sweet thing to do. If he's going to be sending me his art, I'll just send him something of mine. I, so then he writes back, Anthony's so excited uh, about the trade. Um, he's like, you can't wait. And he's like, we, we sent your package. So there's a lot of communication, it sounds like. Yeah, there was a lot of communication. An intimate communication, you know, he'd write things like, Anthony says hi, Anthony draws all the time. And so then this package arrives of these drawings, and they, they had written me a letter with it from Anthony and Benjamin. Um, and the drawings, I take the drawings out, and they're just like totally insane looking. Like they're just like, whoa. I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of stick figure but they're like... They're this man with this face with his mouth open. And then he's got all these googly things coming out of his eyes. And then there's random words written everywhere. And I was, like, transfixed. All the pictures were nearly identical, drawn in ballpoint pen on pieces of plain white paper. Chandra wrote Benjamin. And I said, wow, you know, these are so amazing. Thank you so much. I love his drawings. A few days later, she received a second package of drawings. And in that package were more letters and then a box of chocolates. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, a box of chocolates, you know. Um, and so then I guess my drawing arrived and he said, Anthony's so excited. Um, you're, you know, the drawing just came. He wants me to frame it for him. Thank you so much, Chandra. So glad to hear you got the box of chocolates. Did you eat the chocolate? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. It was good chocolate. Chandra's not a fool. She said there was a second before she bit into the chocolate where she wondered if she should eat it. Who were these people sending her chocolates and drawings? She'd had little nagging doubts all along, and as things progressed, she wondered more and more about certain elements of the story. Like, how did Anthony find her work in the first place? Then Chandra was on the phone with a friend, retelling the story in detail. Her friend was Nigerian, and he recognized Benjamin's last name as also being Nigerian. And he says to me, he's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to make you feel bad or anything. And he's like, but you know, I don't, really, I don't really trust Nigerians. And this is coming from a Nigerian, right? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't know if I trust that this is real. And I remember feeling a little hurt by him, <laughs> even though I felt like I had no reason to be hurt by him. But like I was in my brain, like, what, you don't think I'm moving this autistic boy? Like, and it was so I would. And so I started asking people, like, do you think that this is real? And everyone I talked to would would say, who would ever like have an autistic child, pretend to have an autistic child and then send you these drawings and write you these intimate details? Nobody thought it, you know, wasn't real. Chandra poked around online. She didn't really find anything. She never heard from Benjamin again, which felt a little strange, given how friendly and personal their emails had been. But she just let it drop. Two years passed. Then, just a few months ago, Chandra was at a party in New York with a bunch of friends from grad school. And I was hanging out with a friend of mine, whose work I really love, and I think is like a great guy or whatever, and we're talking. And he turns to me and he says, Oh my God, I have to tell you the most amazing thing just happened to me. And he goes on to tell me the same exact story. Everything's the same. The dad in England, the autistic son, the names, the address, the wording of the letter. Anthony really loves your work. 
my first reaction was, oh, well, he's just, you know, I guess he's just a fan of both of our work and wasn't sure if we were talking about the same person. This is Chandra's friend, a painter named Baker Overstreet. He's had a similar career arc to Chandra, both of them showing internationally, both collected by Saatchi right out of grad school. As I was describing it to her, I could tell she was eager to interject. And he's like, no, no, this couldn't have happened to you. And I remember I looked at him and I was like, did you get a box of chocolates? And he just stared at me, like with this funny face. (laughs) Right? Baker pulled out his phone and showed Chandra pictures he'd taken of Anthony's drawings. Chandra told Baker, those are the same drawings I got. They weren't photocopies or replicas, just very, very similar. The moment that happened, it was like my confirmation. You know, I had been skeptical before, but then I was like, this is a scam. Because of Chandra's reaction, Baker decided to hold off sending a drawing. Chandra saw an obvious link. They'd both been collected by Charles Saatchi. Maybe Benjamin was just combing the Saatchi website looking for artists to write to. It makes sense. It would be an easy way to find artists whose work was potentially valuable. After I found out about this happening to someone else, I was like, this has to stop. Like, this is wrong. And what this man is potentially doing, if it is the Saatchi website that he's getting the artists from, is that if he writes to, say, 500 artists and only 100 artists respond with a drawing, the drawing I gave him is valued somewhere between like $1,000 and $2,000. The drawing that my friend would have given him might have been valued at like even higher, $4,000. He's got a $100,000 art collection. And getting the Saatchi artist to do it means that a majority of those drawings or those works are going to actually rise in price. So if he holds on to it for 30 years, he could have a million-dollar art collection. It's like crazy. Was any of it true, Chandra wondered? Was there even an autistic boy out there who loved her work? I don't know what to say, but it's just, I, I mean, the way that this could actually be real, I feel like you'd have to find the people and say what, what's going on here. And I don't think talking either, and I don't think writing letters, and I don't think writing emails is going to find out. I think, mm-hmm. like, actually physically meeting, you know, the boy. I don't know. Well, I suppose that would be eight right there. Shall we? So feeling half like Geraldo Rivera and half like I'd just conned this American life myself, I boarded a plane to London to either catch an international art thief or meet the loving father of an autistic teenage artist. I thought requesting an interview over email or telephone would just give this guy a chance to turn me down. This American life producer, Jonathan Menhivar, joined me there, and on a freezing cold Sunday afternoon, we went to the address that had been included in the letters to both Chandra and Baker. I have to stop the tape right here. A woman answered the door, told us she didn't want to be recorded, asked us who we were and why we were there. She told us to go away. She said she smelled a rat. We left our phone number and figured Benjamin would never call us, that we'd flown all the way to London for nothing. And then, in less than two hours, we were stunned when he called, and even more stunned when he agreed to let us come over. I'm Jonathan. It's nice recording? to meet you. It is recording. It sure, sure. Benjamin greeted us at the door to his home and let us in. He's a tall black man, about 40. He was in socks and a sweater. The place was modest. We entered the living room, and the woman who'd answered the door earlier, who turned out to be Benjamin's wife, was in one corner. A boy who was introduced to us as their younger son was on the couch playing a video game. 
There was no sign of Anthony. But I also didn't feel comfortable asking where he was right off the bat. We thought maybe the house would be packed with drawings and paintings by artists that Benjamin had written to. But there was no art on the walls. Instead, there were nails and hooks where things appeared to usually hang. Without any prompting, Benjamin explained they were in the middle of renovation, so they took everything down. There was tape around the edge of some of the windows, and the room smelled faintly of paint. We sat down, and Benjamin asked a lot of questions. What our motivation was, who this was for, were we going to edit and manipulate the tape? Then he said okay, and we started. I asked him to explain, what's going on? Well, you know, from my perspective, Anthony is autistic, and um, he's got a gift, in my opinion, um, for art. Now, regarding um, contact with other artists, my understanding is a tradition of artists exchanging works. They exchange works left, right, and center internationally. There's, you know, there's this constant swapping of art, you know. So we're not doing anything different from what they're doing amongst themselves. It's just that probably we're breaking into their circle in an unconventional manner. Now, who's this dude? He's written to that person and that person and that person. Who is he? Is he real? Is he some fiction? Is he some big scam? And he's real. Yeah, I mean, what would you, what would you say to that? Is Anthony real? <laughs> of course Anthony's real. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, I'd be, no, he, yeah, he's real, he's real. Yeah, he's absolutely real. Benjamin said, you'll get to see him. And we realized, oh, he's actually here in the house somewhere. Though Benjamin didn't seem to be in a hurry to go get him. And before we had a chance to ask, Benjamin made it clear. He wasn't going to let us speak to Anthony. We wouldn't be able to talk to him directly about these art trades. Benjamin later explained, Anthony has trouble in social situations, and especially with communication. He said it was best to speak on his son's behalf. We asked Benjamin how many artists he'd written to, the way he'd written to Chandra and Baker. He wouldn't say. How many artists have you contacted or communicated with about this? Um, how many artists have spoken to you about it? <laughs> A couple. Well, off the top of my head, I don't know, but um, let's just leave it at that. Okay. I mean, I, I guess... Specific numbers. I don't know specific sure. numbers. I mean, well, been, we'll put it this way. There have been quite a few, of course. Put it that way. There have been quite a few. But, you know, to give you a number off the top of my head, no. But, there've been, you know, there have been quite a few. Have quite a few responded by giving you drawings or paintings? or? Well, I'm guessing if you guys flew in from New York, this is, this is not just one or two drawings we're talking about. If you guys have come all the way from New York for this, well, it's been quite a few. You know, it's been quite a few. Put it that way. Are we talking like 10 or 100 or... I mean. <laughs> well, quite a few is what I will say. We were annoying. We were persistent. At one point, Benjamin looked around the living room and answered at least a little more fully. Take a look behind you. Unfortunately, well, it's a blank wall. No, it's a blank wall, but you'll see there's some nails that we've put in. It's because we've been painting, and they're right up there, basically. Can you see? Can you acknowledge that you do yeah. see? Oh. You do see them. So, basically, we hang them up on the wall. I mean, over, over here. You know, that's one work. Right, so that's we're another at, work. We're looking at a blank wall here. That's but, another work. It's a blank okay. wall because we're painting. Gotcha. That's another work. That's another work. That's another one. That's another one. That's another one. Uh, there were maybe a dozen blank spots on the wall. 
Benjamin confirmed their collection was larger than that and added that they also change up what's hanging so the kids can appreciate different works. We asked for the names of the artists. Benjamin either said he couldn't remember off the top of his head or he didn't want to violate their privacy. We asked to see Chandra's drawing. We wondered if he'd sold it. He went upstairs and was gone for a few minutes. Then he came back with the drawing. It was unframed. Yeah, so this is it. <laughs> We're going to have it framed and put it up eventually. We asked lots of other questions. Why was Benjamin's correspondence with different artists almost word for word the same? He said, it's just a formality. Why vary it? We asked, how did Anthony find out about Chandra's work? Benjamin explained that when Anthony finds artists, well, obviously there's some adult input. He said, I can't recall where we came across her wonderful work. Did you learn about Chandra and Baker's work from the Saatchi website? He said he found Chandra's work online, but wouldn't get more specific. Did Anthony really have a special response to Chandra's work? How do you know what he responds to? Benjamin basically said, a parent can just tell. Have you sold any of the work you've received? He replied that 99.99% of the collection is intact. After almost an hour of talking, my producer Jonathan cut in with this question. One of the possibilities when you look at the situation is, is that, um, that you're using his autism to collect art. You know, that it is some version of a scam. That's an interesting. That's interesting. You say. I mean, yeah, you could say that. That's one way of looking at it. Absolutely. I mean, it's not a scam. Put it that way. And um, I, I would understand if people thought that, but it, it, it isn't a scam. It's just a simple love of art. You know, that's all it is. You know. At one point, Benjamin was explaining to us what Anthony's early drawings were like. He told us Anthony was obsessed with trains. And then Anthony just wandered into the room. Uh, trains to begin with. That's Anthony, by the way. Here's one question we got a definitive answer to. Anthony is very real. He's a tall, broad-shouldered teenager. He's 15 now. He was barefoot, and I could see that a few of his toes and fingers were slightly malformed. He only kind of acknowledged us and went and sat beside his mother. I don't personally know much about autism, but Anthony appeared to have a disorder. He spoke a few times, but never to us directly. His speech was slow and hard to understand. Benjamin told us that their other son is also autistic. Benjamin mentioned that Anthony played piano. And when we finished our interview, they brought down Anthony's keyboard and set it on the table. I'm going to play rap. You want to play rap? <laughs> I'm a musician myself, and I've heard hundreds of piano improvisations. Anthony's music had the kind of spaciousness, repetition, and tiny deviations of some of my favorite avant-garde music. It was both thoughtful and intuitive, strangely confident and vulnerable at the same time. I was hearing something unique. I was really conflicted. I liked the family. They'd let us into their home and offered us tea and tolerated our questions. I believe that these were two parents who cared deeply for their children. Oh. What was that piece 
real history anti pop consortium. Oh, okay. You know? Thank you. It's from this 64. Okay, I'm gonna let him go. <laughs> Alright, so much. much. When I got home, Benjamin finally gave me the names of a few artists who've collaborated with Anthony. I was able to reach three of them. They'd all gotten letters similar to Chandra's, saying, I have an autistic son who's fallen in love with your art. Two of them got chocolates. The only artist I spoke to who actually met Benjamin and Anthony was Tillman Kaiser. They showed up at his gallery show in London last summer. He was also the only one who was able to address our biggest question, the thing we couldn't figure out at Benjamin's. Was Anthony truly engaged with the art his dad was exposing him to? He was standing in front of the canvases and sculptures and had a look. And uh, I really had the impression that he enjoyed meeting me and he seemed to be quite interested in the paintings and looked at him um, one by one. Tillman said Anthony even made up his own titles for a couple paintings. Elephant Ears. And the other one, he called it drug addiction. I mean, I think it's totally weird what they're doing, but I don't want to judge them, you know? I don't, I don't want to say uh, they do bad things. Finally, I met again with Chandra and told her what I'd learned, that Anthony does exist, that he probably has some disorder, that Benjamin seems to be collecting from quite a few artists. She was torn. It's like on the one hand, it's really wonderful. I wish maybe it would have been, I guess wish maybe it would have been proposed to me that we have this autistic child. He really responds to art. You know, we're, we're amassing a collection of art for him, for him to learn from, to be inspired from, to realize his own talents. You know, it would be so special if we could do a trade with you because we know he loves your work. Like all these things maybe would have helped me kind of understand, as opposed to writing an email saying you're the one that moves Anthony. What if that's totally authentic? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a wonderful story then. It's, a, you know, that he's wanting to do all of this for his children. But it's just like, why did Baker and I feel so awkward when we found out that we both got asked the same thing? Why do we both think it was so much about us? You know? So yes, Chandra thinks Benjamin could be more transparent with the artist he's contacting. But I agree, if he's doing this for his kids, that's a wonderful story. It's optimistic. And so many artists are optimists. Proof? Chandra's friend Baker, hearing what we discovered in London, still wants to send Anthony a drawing. Two of the other artists I'd spoke to, artists who'd sent Anthony their work, were totally okay with what Benjamin's doing. And if there's one thing I've learned from this experience, it's that, man, artists are an easy mark. Because it's so obvious what they want. They want to reach people. Otherwise, why show your art? Why be an artist? So all you have to say is, I'm moved by what you do. Or my kid is moved by what you do. So many artists are like, you want to pay me? Great. But you say you love my work? Even better. Let me send you some. Scott Pink Mountain is a composer, musician, and writer in Pioneer Town, California. By the way, you can see some of Anthony's artwork at our website. 
Our program is produced today by Robin Semyon and me with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sarah Koenig, Miki Meek, Jonathan Menhebar, Brian Reed, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production up from Fia Benin. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon's our production manager. Louise Bergerson's our administrative assistant. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Chuck Klosterman, Leslie Brack, Irving Botwinick, Julie Beer, Tarek Ismail, and Michelle Harris. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, I have asked him so many times over the years, over and over, and every time I get the same answer, I ask him, Tori, how many women have you slept with? Quite a few, of course. Put it that way. There have been quite a few. But, you know, to give you a number off the top of my head, no. But, there've been, you know, there have been quite a few. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.